Ladies and gentlemen, uh, my name is Michael Bridge, and it's my great pleasure to introduce Professor Roy Good, who's going to be speaking to us tonight on the subject of secured transactions and the process of international harmonization and domestic reform. But first of all, I'm exhibiting a mobile phone. Now, if you were in a cinema, you would hear something fairly witty about turning off mobile phones. Uh, I can't quite reproduce that, nor can I do as certain birds in New Guinea and Australia do, and that is actually reproduce the sound of a mobile phone or even a mechanical lawnmower. But please, could you turn off any phones so as not to disturb our speaker? Now, Roy Good is truly one of these people who needs no introduction. He's a professor emeritus from the University of Oxford and still lives in Oxford. He was the founder of the Centre for Commercial Law Studies at Queen Mary, and Queen Mary Centre is a close neighbour of the LSC, just further up Lincoln's Inn Fields. And he was knighted for services to academic law in the year 2000. He's going to be talking to us about harmonisation both um, domestically and internationally, and he's promised not to make it a very technical lecture, because I think he wants to capture the essence of the harmonisation process. The question of reform of the English law of secured transactions has been one that has exercised many minds over the last 40 or 50 years. And one can go back to the Crowther Report on Consumer Credit, on which Roy sat, over 40 years ago. And the Crowther Report called for quite radical reform of the law of consumer credit. And that call has been repeated on subsequent occasions largely met, I think, by a response that can be summarized, if a little crudely but not unfairly, as the present system isn't broke, why do we need to fix it? Well, I think Roy will be addressing uh, precisely that kind of consideration. And another consideration, too, is whether or not uh, English law can participate in international harmonization processes that cannot reproduce the peculiarities of English secured transactions law. To put it fairly simply, um, secured transactions and personal property law are areas where it's very, very difficult to secure any kind of agreement amongst different legal systems, and that is a recipe, in effect, for wiping the slate clean and starting again. Now, I've trespassed already too far on Roy's um, territory, he is a prime architect of the Cape Town Convention on Mobile Equipment, and I'm fairly sure that that particular initiative is going to bulk quite large in the coming 45 or so minutes. So without more ado, Roy. Well, um... <clears throat> First of all, my thanks to uh, Michael Bridge for that very kind introduction. Of course, I, I'm talking about a subject in which he himself ha has an international reputation, and I'd said to him before, actually, I've got a brilliant idea. You give the lecture, and I'll introduce you. But I couldn't persuade him. And I'm delighted to see a number of familiar faces. Um, I, I once gave a talk at a large conference brilliant lecture, at least in my own estimation. It was witty, it was concise, it was elegant, and it was to the point. And the only problem was, as I belatedly discovered, that apparently I was speaking at the wrong conference. 
And, and the interesting thing was nobody in the audience was aware that anything was amiss. It just shows you can get away with murder on the conference circuit. So I want to talk about uh, uh, credit and security. In 1847, there was introduced into the um, Mississippi legislature a bill uh, which proposed that all security should be abolished and that debts should be payable in honour only. It didn't actually get through, although it did get a fair bit of support. But it led me to speculate when I was talking to uh, at a conference of Canadian bankers and banking lawyers many years ago as to whether the financial heavens would actually fall in if we went down that route and abolished security. But when I noticed the growing horror on the, on the face of my audience, uh, I had to hastily reassure them this was an Englishman's idea of a joke and I moved off on to other things. We know actually from studies by the World Bank that in fact, without a reasonably developed system for non-possessory uh, security in movable assets, it is exceedingly difficult for a country to develop uh, if they're simply relying on land <coughs> and, um, and on physical pledge. It, it doesn't do very much for you. Um, so security has been uh, developing quite widely with sometimes unexpected side effects. Uh, in the 18th century, the councillors of British East Florida uh, opposed the, death, the imposition of, death, of the death penalty on slaves. They weren't actually terribly bothered about the welfare of the slaves, but they were often given insecurity, and they, what they didn't want to see happening was the disappearance of their collateral. <coughs> so, um, so they opposed the death penalty. It was a very sensible thing to do. <coughs> I want to, as, as Michael said, I want to look at the um, secure transactions law from two vantage points. One, one is the international scene and harmonisation, uh, and the second is domestic law reform, taking security in its broad sense to cover things that fulfil a security function, uh, including title retention, and also, for some purposes, uh, outright sales of receivables. The main emphasis being on substantive law, but with some, uh, some thoughts on conflict of laws. People used to think conflict of laws was on the way out with all harmonisation going on. Of course, it's not at all the case. It, it's as vigorous as it ever was. So the first question, I suppose, is why harmonise? Um, harmonisation is not self-justifying, actually. Um, there is merit uh, in a diversity of laws, and different legal cultures and so on. Uh, so it isn't self-justifying, uh, except, of course, so far as the EU is concerned. When uh, you start on a harmonisation project because it looks interesting, or expand the role of the community, and only later on did you ask yourself if the, if the solution that you found is to a problem that actually exists, and indeed, if you have legal, comp if the community has the union has legal competence to undertake the task in the first place. Um, but leaving aside the EU, um, if you have cross-border transactions, and particularly cross-border transactions involving third parties, uh, it is um, extremely difficult to operate without 
uh, a measure, at least, of harmonisation. And harmonisation doesn't simply mean choosing the lowest common denominator that's common to legal systems. It means choosing uh, the best solutions to typical problems. So nobody involved in the harmonisation process is just trying to find out what's common to the legal systems. We wouldn't actually achieve anything very much. So actually, harmonisation involves not just unification, if you like, but also law reform. Um, process is long and arduous. It usually takes many years. It typically take, say, ten years. There are various reasons for that. One is the infrequency of meetings, because that's, they're expensive to hold. People are busy. There's insufficient, in my opinion, intercessional activity between meetings of the plenum. There ought to be things going on instead of which people wait till the next plenary session in a year's time, by which time people have tended to forget what it was that influenced their views in the first place. Um, there, there are other reasons, actually. I mean, those are the official reasons. I'll come to that. There are other reasons that are not talked about. For example... I chaired a study group in Rome. My colleague said to me, Roy, do you not think we should be moving a little faster? And I said, dear colleague, surely you have misunderstood the nature of our mission? He said, we all agree that Rome is a nice place. Our goal should be to advance the project a little bit each year, but never actually bring it to fruition. Well, this kept us going for 10 years, but then in an excess of enthusiasm we finished. Very bad news. But several others came back, now wearing a different hat as a member of the Committee of Governmental Experts. Wearing this new hat, we felt free fiercely to criticise what we'd taken ten years to agree on before, and that held it up for another four years. So we were in Rome for 14 years. It was absolutely brilliant. That's one of the things. Now, what are the keys to success, actually? This is not just secure transaction, but anything, I think. You, you need, of course, to have all the legal families represented. You need a strong involvement of the industry sector concerned in the commercial law area from the outset. The project needs to be neither too narrow, uh, where it wouldn't achieve much, or too broad, where it's not possible to achieve anything. You need to devote a lot of time, and this is often neglected, to building consensus. This is extremely important. You need uh, industry prepared to commit time and resources uh, on a major scale, actually. And you need, I'm firmly convinced of this, one individual driver. And we had it uh, for Cape Town in the shape of a young American writer, Jeffrey Wall, and we, we also had it for the Hague uh, Convention on Intermediated Securities. Um, one individual who's going to power this along, pull together meetings, build up a pressure group, and, and, and carry the thing forward. Without that, it's actually quite difficult to move. So my focus is actually on this part of my talk on international conventions, but uh, just a, a, a brief word about um, legislative guides, model laws and legislative guides. Um, we've had a, a number of model laws um, which I think have been successful in different ways, actually. We've got, for example... Unstrong model law and cross-border insolvency, which is really used as a model law, uh, and, and arbitration. We have uh, what I regard also as a very successful model law on secure transactions by the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development. That actually uh, is 
has been used less as a model law than as a sort of legislative guide, really. Uh, and indeed, it, it, it wasn't ever intended, I think, to be reproduced exactly as they've got it, but it has been very influential uh, in uh, domestic legislation in Central and Eastern Europe. Um, so, uh, and then we have increasing use of, of shorter things, statements of core principles, uh, and, and so on. And then we have the massive uh, Unsetrial Legislative Guide on Secure Transactions. This, this is uh, an enormous thing uh, with various supplements. Uh, I think it's actually, in, in a way, quite an impressive work. The, the, the problem, perhaps, is who is it aimed at? Because I think, it, in a way, it's too big for developing jurisdictions, and the developed ones arguably don't, don't need it so much. So there, there's a bit of a problem, but, it, but it, it, there's a, a lot in it. And then we've got the DCFR. We've got the Draft Common Frame of Reference. I have to say, it's probably my, I'm sure it's my ignorance. I have no idea what the draft common frame of reference is intended to be. I mean, is it a sort of stockpot? You put something, you pull something out, or is it intended to be a possible applicable law, or is it intended to be not an applicable law, but something which is absorbed into the law that would be applicable under the conflict laws, rules as a parallel legal system, with, and so on. At any rate, it's kept large numbers of scholars fruitfully engaged for many years, and uh, I'm not sure the activity shows any signs of ceasing. But I mention it only because there is a chapter on, or part on secured transactions, actually, by Professor Ulrich Drobnik, who is a fine scholar. He's a great scholar, and he is a true academic, a true academic. I once went to see him some years after he retired as director of the Max Planck Institute in Hamburg, we had a nice chat, we had a cup of tea, been there four years in this room. He said, now, Roy, as I, on my way out, if there's any help you need, don't hesitate to give me a ring. And my secretary will give you the telephone number. That's Ulrich. You know, four years, he hadn't quite caught up with his telephone number, but he, he's extraordinarily knowledgeable. Um, so, you know, if, if there's going to be anything in that area in the DCFR, you couldn't have a better person to do it, I think. So I just want to look at two aspects uh, on the international. So one is receivables financing and the other is asset-based financing. Receivables financing, just start with the UNIDOR Convention on International Factoring. That was actually, in its way, quite a useful convention. It dealt with uh, international factoring transactions. It provided, for example, that you could take... uh, uh, an assignment of future receivables without a new act of transfer and, and, and indeed without individual specification. It had provisions uh, overriding prohibitions against assignment. These prohibitions against assignment are really inimical to receivables financing. So it had a provision overriding that. It had debtors' rights of set off and that sort of thing. It is in force, but it's never really taken off. Uh, only seven ratifications. Maybe the industry pressure, although it was there, wasn't quite strong enough. Um, maybe it was too narrow. It didn't deal with priorities. It didn't deal with uh, it didn't really deal with property rights very much. And also, it was confined to notification financing, you know, where you notify the assignment, <coughs> whereas not very long afterwards, there was a sharp move 
to non-notification uh, invoice discounting to which the convention did not apply. So it's never really happened. But it was, it was a, I'd like to think it was a, a decent effort. <clears throat> then we have a much more ambitious thing, the United Nations Convention on the Assignment of Receivables in International Trade. <clears throat> this was altogether bigger, and it perhaps a little over-ambitious. It covers both the assignment of international receivables, where the, the, the debtor and the creditor are in different countries, and the international assignment of receivables, domestic or international, where the assignor and the assignee are in different countries. It has a, a lot of uh, provisions governing the parties' rights, uh, priority rules, and it also has a rather useful conflict of laws rule, which says that you know, when you're looking at competing priorities, competing assignments, you um, look at the law of the assignor's place of business. I ha happen to agree with, although I think a number of colleagues in, in the UK uh, do not. Well, that's on the receivables financing. So all we've got then is, is a factoring convention, which is, is enforced but not taken off. We have the UN convention, which has only got, in 11 years, one ratification, namely Liberia. Uh, <clears throat> maybe premature to write that off, because apparently it's now in the United States uh, uh, got to a, a sort of relatively high priority level. And, and one thought is, well, when, if the U.S. ratifies, then other countries will come in. Well, we will have to see. Uh, and sometimes things do take a long time, but this is taking a very long time. Now I want to move on to something which already has become very successful, and that is the UNIDWAR Convention on International Interests in Mobile Equipment and its associated protocols. The purpose of the convention is to deal with assets which either move from one country to another in the way of trade. I'm talking about aircraft, uh, sorry, yeah, aircraft objects and railway roading stock, or are not on earth at all. So you may have rights in one country. You may have good default remedies in one country, but if the aircraft lands in a country... Where, it is, where it's very much a debtor-based philosophy, the creditor may find it takes him quite a long time to get his asset back. And when it comes to priorities, you have no idea where you are at all, <coughs> because we can't even actually agree on a uniform conflict of laws rules governing priority of, of competing interests, let alone having a uniform substantive law rule. So... What the Cape Town Convention is designed to do is to avoid recourse to conflict of laws rules altogether, to have uniform rules with basic default remedies, uh, which can be enforced in any contracting state, to then establish an international interest which would be the creature of the convention and not dependent on national law, would be sui generis international interests, which would trump national interests if registered. There would be an international registry which you could register these things and a set of priority rules. And actually, we have a very simple set of priority rules. It's all in one article, at least so far as the basic uh, uh, international interest is concerned. And the international interest covers uh, charges, if you like, 
security uh, conditional sale agreements and leases. And the rights of the chargee or the conditional seller or lessor can be registered and will have priority over, in principle, over all subsequently registered interests and unregistered interests, whether or not they're registered. There are some exceptions to that, but that is actually the basic idea. So there are several unique features, actually. We have the concept of the international interest, which is new. We have the concept of an international register of these interests, which is also new, based, in the case of aircraft, in Dublin. Each of those three categories will have a separate register. Um, You also have a system where you have a framework convention and three protocols... And the distinctive feature of the protocol is that it can override the convention. The protocol can modify the convention to meet the requirements of the particular industry sector concern. Um, so the aircraft protocol extends the convention to cover outright sales and modifies it in certain other respects. So now we have the convention and the aircraft protocol. Already, there are 52 ratifications of the Convention, 46 of the Protocol. Australia and Canada have indicated they intend to ratify. And we are hoping that the UK, which generally tends to be the very last, we put a lot into these things and then we walk away. But we're hoping that actually by Christmas, you know, it'll be a little Christmas gift from David Cameron, who's passionately interested, I think, in this Convention. Um, that we'll have a Christmas gift saying the UK will ratify, we hope. And for those who think that it's only countries with highly developed legal systems that get interested in, the, in, in these things, one of the very first states to ratify, amazingly, was Afghanistan. You know, there's a war going on. But nevertheless, they say they saw the importance of this, so Afghanistan came in to ratify. It just shows the power of international conventions when you really get going. Now, this actually has worked because of a great driving force. The Aviation Working Group was set up with the, under the leadership of this young lawyer. Industry put a great deal into it. The role of government representatives, of course, was to make sure that they didn't get more than they should. And on the whole, I think the balance has come out quite well. You you can't just let industry dictate what's to go in. On the other hand, it's very important that it actually does meet their needs. And, I mean, we walked into a problem early on with drafting. How do we define an aircraft? Or how do we define an aircraft engine? Nobody had the faintest idea. Uh, And so uh, we definitely need uh, this. And then... When you've got your convention, you're only halfway there. Then you've got to get ratification. This, this is often forgotten, actually. You get the convention, everybody goes home and thinks, that's a great job. But unless states ratify, you haven't achieved anything very much. So that's the thing. And what the, the aviation people did, this working group, the aviation working group, then was, went crusading around the world, selling this, around the world to states, and that is, I think, one of the reasons why it's been so successful. Now, I just want to talk about secured financing and the conflict of laws. Because 
there's an, uh, another interesting um, thing that happened with the Hague Convention on the law applicable to intermediated securities. Intermediated securities are securities that you hold not from the issuer, but from an intermediary like a bank or, or a central securities depository or something of that sort. Whereas the work on the Cape Town Convention must have taken about 10 years or here now, the Hague Convention was remarkably fast. Uh, it was, um, the idea was to have conflict rules saying what law will govern dealings in intermediated securities, what, what law will govern relations between the parties, what law will govern competing priorities, and so on. Well, the, the, the mastermind of this, actually, an Australian, uh, he got going with this, um, and uh, he went, my suggestion, not to Unibar, but to the Hague Conference on uh, Private International Law, and they said, well, it's an interesting proposal, but uh, you better get it in fast because we only meet once every four years. <laughs> so he got it in and they decided to take it on and they decided to give it priority. And what he did was to get a group of people, government people, industry people, and so on like that, in the securities industry, in a massive telephone uh, telephone. Interchange. So every so often, <clears throat> you'd be on a conference call, which would go on for, say, three hours. We'd all end up in a state of rigor mortis, actually. You know, you, you, you couldn't move your arm. But what he did was to get suck everybody in, even people who didn't speak on the conference call. He'd say, well, you know, uh, Alberto, what do you think about this? So he got everybody in. And then... The second unique te technique was the drafting committee was mandated to build for a consensus between full sessions and was mandated to draft for any consensus that was reached so that between sessions there might be a lot of changes to the instrument as a result of consensus and we'd save an awful lot of time when we came back the following year. The result of this was that the thing from start to finish took two and a half years, which is, uh, you know, that is amazing in terms of an international two and a half years. Fortunately, I would like to report that it all ended happily. It didn't end happily, partly because um, we got a bit thrown off course. Uh, our American colleagues said the principle that you want to apply the law applicable to of choosing the law of the place of the relevant intermediary was not certain enough because the, 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 the functions of maintaining securities accounts could be distributed among different offices of an organization in different countries. So that won't work. And the result was we got moved away from the central point, which had got support right from the EU and everybody else, onto a rather different framework, which is actually a good framework, but it, 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 we hit opposition from the European Central Bank and others. So it hasn't actually happened. And I don't know whether it will from outside Europe, but within Europe it seems to be blocked for the moment, which is really a, bit, a bit sad. 
Then we've got the Geneva Convention, which is a unitary convention, uh, on substantive law governing intermediated securities. And this is interesting. It has somewhat similar technique to that adopted in the Convention on International Contracts for the Sale of Goods, where you only apply the convention if the, if the rules of private international law of the forum lead to, to, lead to a contracting state. And <coughs> only then does the convention apply. And, the, and then the, the, con, the convention itself has its own substantive rules, but it also has rules for those to be supplemented by what it calls non-convention law, i.e. the law in the designated contracting state other than the convention. And this is, uh, well, it's early days, but we'll have to see. The hope is that that will actually um, gain success, but it's really um, too soon to tell. And finally, on the conflict of laws, and my last thing on the international scene, is the proposal to add to Rome 1, let's say the regulation on the law applicable to contractual obligations, by, which already has a conflict rule on um, assignments of debts vis-a-vis the debtor, but to add a rule on assignments, uh, on competing assignments, and a competition perhaps between the assignee and the liquidation itself. The British Institute of International Law was asked to work on this, came up with three alternative uh, proposals as to what that rule might be. The only thing they said, they didn't express a preference, although there was clearly actually a preference. They made that uh, from their respondents on choosing the law of the assignment's place of business as the governing law. They said, well, there are these three. The only thing we, we do stress we do emphasize is the desirability of having one law, the same law to govern all property aspects regardless of the relationships. This, uh, the logic of this has not, I have to say, appealed to me. Uh, it doesn't either seem to fit with one's general understanding of how private international law works. But I'm not a conflicts lawyer, so I'm sure that my concerns are down to sheer ignorance. We, we will have to see. I was not actually very impressed with the conclusions. The work was terrific. The conclusions were, well, you know, to me something went a bit wrong. So that, that's actually all I need to say on that. Uh, may I, um, those of you who after a hard day's work feel the eyelids closing, just may I urge you to yield to temptation. I will give you a shout when I get to the end of my talk. So. I mean, perfectly understand why. I said to my students, I said, you know, this sense of ennui that they obviously feel sometimes translates to the other side of the desk. <laughs> I had a colleague who had a dream. He dreamt he was giving a lecture. But then he woke up and discovered he was. <laughs> so, <laughs> Now, uh, I'm turning, uh, moving, cantering on speed to the company law review, a massive endeavor the company law, I think it was terrific actually, um, which one of the things it looked at, there was a sort of sub-working group I think, 
uh, looking at company charges, registration of company charges, which was minded to take a bit of a restricted view of, of how the law should change. Uh, and I'm happy to say that following on a, a seminar in Oxford, uh, they decided actually this needed possibly something more radical and it ought to be referred to the Law Commission, which in due course it was, to re-examine uh, the, the law on registration of company charges and related aspects. And, and um, as we'll see, the Law Commission took the opportunity to, to take a, a very broad view of things. Uh, so you couldn't look at registration without looking at attachment you and, and, and priorities and, and so on. Now, there are people who say, well, actually... What's wrong with English law as we've got it? Um, you know, it works. Well, of course, it works. It has to be made to work. And we have very good practitioners and we have very good judges. It has to be made to work. But whether it works efficiently is something else. And if it doesn't work efficiently, then inefficiency costs time, it costs money. Now, what is the problem with it? I think there are five major weaknesses. We have a mass of case law going back to the 19th century on which is superimposed bits and pieces of legislation. So there's this mass of case law. means it's very inaccessible. You've got to do a lot of work to dig out the law. Of course, you rely on textbooks, uh, but uh, I mean, without textbooks, goodness knows where we'd be. At least I like to think that's the case, actually. But, um, but it's inaccessible. It's not in any codified form. And being inaccessible, it is also unexportable. We have no ability to influence what's going on in Europe, for example, because you know, people say, well, where is your security law? And we say, well, we, you know, we, we've, got, we've got about 10,000 uh, cases. Quite a lot of them belong to the 19th century, but very good stuff. It doesn't really quite sell the product. And the old... We've got the Bills of Sale Acts, 1878 and 1882. This, these acts are remarkable. A bill of sales, let's say a, a written chattel mortgage over goods by, uh, by an individual or partnership, has to, have the most deta- has to comply with the most detailed formalities, the breach of any one of which can invalidate your security. And not only that, the bill of sale has to be signed, and then there has to be an attesting witness to witness the signature. And the attestation has also got to comply with all the rules. So it's been held, for example, that to describe the attesting witness as of no occupation is not a valid description. So if you put a no occupation in the attesting witnesses, the whole bill is void. But if you had the word gentleman, that is okay. Well, it's okay, provided that that description is not inapplicable to the rank of society in which he moves. Well, it is fairly old, this legislation. So we've got archaic, inaccessible law, archaic legislation. We have a multiplicity of categories all serving the same security function. Um, let's take conditional... I mean, we've got actually ten different instruments, if you add them all up, 
because we've got, we've got legal mortgages, we've got equitable mortgages, we've got fixed charges, we've got floating charges, we've got contractual loans, we've got pledges. And then we've got title retention, which is intended to fulfil a security function. People are not wanting to make a profit out of the debtor's default. And other things which may or may not fulfil a security function, depending on how they're structured. Uh, finance leases may fulfil a security function. Uh, consignment agreements and so on. Um, we have ten different instruments. Each of them is governed by different rules for creation, different rules for perfection, different priority rules. It's a nightmare. Not only that, we have completely archaic registration system. I don't mean the company's house doesn't do a good job. They do, but they're, they're within the rules. and they're, they're about to slightly improve things from a technical side. But first of all, you have to register, and, and soon we shall have regulations which say you've got to register everything except for a few a, a small uh, certain categories, which is the opposite of what we've got now. But registration is not a priority point. In other words, you register, you've got 21 days, but it doesn't mean that you're ahead according to the order of registration, no, because there may be somebody else who's got their security agreement first, who will be able to register within 21 days. You've got a 21-day period of invisibility because registration doesn't give you priority. It is only necessary to preserve the efficacy of your interest. So, because registration is not a priority point, we need to have a time limit for registering, 21 days. And then, of course, because there are always thousands of people every year who forget to register within the time, it is then necessary to go to the time and expense of getting a court order to register out of time. Well, this is costing altogether millions of pounds a year. And also, you're vulnerable during that time. You can't get it instantly. It takes a little bit of time to get your court order and to register, during which time you, the unregistered security holder, are vulnerable to a subsequent security or, or to the advent of, of insolvency. So that's not very good. Next thing. Copy of the charge has to be delivered physically company's house. Well, this takes up space. Of course, now you could do it electronically, I suppose. But, and some people say, we should have it all there. We like to see the full instrument. Actually, if you think about it, it gives you very limited information. It will tell you that there is a security. It will tell you over what asset security is taken. It may tell you what's secured. It won't actually tell you things you want to know, like how much money has been advanced, how much money has been repaid, uh, whether a default has occurred, unless there has been some enforcement like the appointment of an administrative receiver. There's all sorts of things which you need to ask the creditor. So it doesn't actually tell you all that much. Um, and, and then it's transaction finding. You have to file one transaction at a time. It means you can't file in advance. You can't file to cover future transactions. Um, and the ability to file in advance of a transaction is actually exceedingly useful if you're, if you're trying to have a complex closing of, of a, lot of, a lot of transactions 
a lot of parties that are trying to all come together with a complex group of agreements. You need the facility of being able to file in advance of your agreement, preserve your priority while you're negotiating. And then finally, the priority rules themselves are very complex and arcane. Um, for example, the sale of receivables, priority of competing sales of receivables is governed by the rule in Durl and Hall, decided in 1828. This is not the most modern case of Durl and Hall, I expect you're all familiar with the rule, but I mean, Durl and Hall concern a man who was entitled to an annuity under will, and he sold it, he sold the right to the annuity, and he receives money. Well, actually, he said to himself, this is really quite a good thing. So he sold it a second time, and he got more money, and by now he was really entering into the spirit of things, so he sold it a third time. It was only the third assignee who gave notice to the trustees that he'd become entitled to uh, the annuity. And this rule, in a case decided in 1828, is the rule that governs priorities in modern receivables financing. Bizarre. And, of course, when you apply it to non-notification financing, it is completely impossible, actually. Completely impossible. So, I haven't mentioned all the areas that are wrong with the law, but you can see there's a number. Now, what happened? Uh, the Law Commission um, took over this project and quite rightly said, well, we've got to look at not only registration but creation, we've got to look at priorities and so on. And they said, let's adopt, as has been done in more than 70 other jurisdictions, a functional approach. We'll, not, we'll have the concept of single security interest. So all things which are, wherever the legal title may be, all things which are structured to provide security will be treated as security interest. One set of rules, one interest governed by uniform set of rules. We abolish the floating charge as a distinct security device. See, the floating charge I mean, it was a brilliant creation. But actually, the floating charge has and continues to generate a vast amount of litigation. Because people are always arguing before the courts, is this charge fixed or floating? And the consequences are quite significant. Well, we don't need all this argy-bargy. What we need to have is a, is a fixed charge where the debtor can be given dealing powers to deal with inventory in the ordinary course of business without prejudice to his status as a fixed security creditor, which you can't do at the moment. And then you order priorities accordingly. So we don't actually need a floating charge, although it's been brilliant in its time. We can get rid of that. We can get rid of all the litigation that involves this question of is something fixed or floating, uh, and people will have the freedom to do anything they could do under the old floating charge, but on ha having a fixed charge. Then you have a concept of what's called notice filing. This was introduced uh, in the United States in Article 9 of the Uniform Commercial Code. Instead of filing uh, uh, in respect of a security agreement, you can file a short financing statement which says you have taken or intend to take a security interest over given categories of collateral. 
you can do this before you've actually got a security agreement, before you've advanced your money, which means that you can file, get priority, because then your priority typically, as between two registrants, will go back to the time of filing of the notice. You can safely go ahead, conduct your due diligence, advance your money without without risking a loss of priorities. It's a short financing statement and it can cover all future deals involving collateral of the same kind. And this means you don't have to worry about time limits. We don't need we can get rid of the twenty one day rule. We can get rid of applications to the court and all the expense that, that involves. You can just carry on in a much more effective way. And then you have priority rules which are designed to provide commercially sensible solutions to practical problems, including the priority of a purchase money security interest, security interest uh, for, to secure payment of money which is advanced for the purchase of the collateral. And so on. And then for certain purposes, one would extend the registration and priority rules to cover outright sales of uh, receivables, for example, they're not, they would not be treated as security interests because they aren't security interests, they're outright sales. But to get the benefit of the transparency through registration and priorities, they would be registrable and would be governed by the same priority rules. But default rem- there wouldn't be default remedies because the asset belongs to the, to the buyer of the receivable. So there's no question of enforcing it and the surplus going back to the debtor and so on. So that... That is, and the, um, that is what the Law Commission proposed. And Professor Hugh Beale, they, they had a consultation paper, and then it was followed by a consultative report. And actually, it was a very fine piece of work, I think. They did a very good job drawing on what had been in force for decades in the United States, this Article 9 in force in every state in the Union, transplanted but in simplified form to Canada, all ten Canadian provinces, transplanted to New Zealand, and now to Australia, all six states. And there are various other jurisdictions. There are more than 70 altogether. I haven't actually managed to do an exhaustive count, but there's an awful lot. And they are all working to a broadly similar set of rules, And the experience has been that the system on the whole works well. It certainly works better than the old system. Well, this hit opposition. It hit opposition from some influential uh, um, uh, members of the legal profession, particularly in the city of London. And it's understandable they did, actually, because the problem was the time constraints of this had to meet the company's bill. Uh, so there really was not enough time, I think, for the profession to engage this, or indeed with the Law Commission to engage with the profession in the way they would have liked to do. So the result was, that the, in the final report, everything got watered down. You know, the floating charge remained, the concept of the single security interest disappeared. Um, and happily, in my opinion... It didn't even then hit the statute book, and I think it's just as well it didn't because it was a bit of a dog's dinner. And I say this with no disrespect to the Law Commission, they did a great job. So the project came to a halt. 
And that's where we've now started the Secure Transactions, Secure Transactions Law Reform Project, which I and various colleagues have put together. Uh, and, uh, uh, and we are taking as our starting point not the final report, but the consultative report. And we have a steering committee chaired by, initially by Lord Bingham and now by Lord Savile, and the executive committee, three working groups. Three, oh, I'm sorry. I, I'm so clumsy. I'm, I'm sorry about that. that that's, uh, yeah, okay. My, my apologies. Actually, that was just to make sure that everybody was still awake. Um, my thing, glass shattering, yeah, no. Sorry about that, my apologies. To be, do be careful. Um, okay, so this project got going with a view to, to actually carrying through something based on the consultative report as a starting position. Nothing being set in stone, but as a starting position because we had to start somewhere. And last December we had a, a conference, quite a big conference, and we brought over uh, Professor Mike Gedai from New Zealand, who explained the New Zealand experience. And he'd done a survey of practitioners, and, and they were pretty solidly behind the reforms. It's, it's been going now for 12 years in New Zealand. They, they were behind them. Then we had Professor Tony Duggan from Canada, who said the same thing about the Canadian position. So we, there's a lot to go on. Oh, we, we take the view. Uh, there may be something special about the English air, which means we don't have to have regard to what's been going on in 70 other jurisdictions. But I, I think, on the whole, we, 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 we have a bit more humility than that. Okay, that's the starting point. What we want to do now is to have an extended consultation. We, unlike the Law Commission, we are not in a hurry. We have no time left to meet. We are particularly uh, uh, interested in the exploratory talks that we are opening up uh, with a, a new working group of the Financial Law Committee of the City of London, North Society, chaired by uh, Richard Kalman, who I'm happy to see here tonight. And incidentally, he has done a super book also on, on, on uh, secured, uh, secured finance, secured law, secured lending, strongly recommended, together, of course, with Michael Bridges' uh, various books. And actually, I, I see uh, several members of the audience who also written mightily in, in this area. Um, uh, so, um, there's no other glasses in there, it's all right. So, this is burning long. We're going to take our time. We're going to chat. We, we want to find out what the, what the view is. We're, we're meeting, in our first meeting with the uh, working party of the, of the Financial Law Committee it's in December. And uh, so, things are moving along. Developments elsewhere. Scotland is doing its own thing, but they're going in a different direction. I mean, their legal system is different, their traditions are different. Jersey is interesting. Jersey is very much going along the lines of um, the sort of Article 9 approach, simplified form. Part one on intangible movables. The law has already got the royal assent. And part two, extending it to tangible movables, is very well advanced. So, with a bit of luck, within a year or so, we hope to get the complete thing very much actually along the lines of the Law Commission's consultative report. And they see this as a way of attracting uh, inward investment. So, what has been suggested follows the experience of a lot of jurisdictions. Tasks won't be easy, but no 
law reform project is easier. What I hope we can all agree on is that transactions entered into in the 21st century are not well served by case law of the 19th. Um, at this point, I'm going to stop. I bear in mind the experience of counsel who appeared before Lord Denning at Court of Appeal. He went on and on and on. And on. Impervious to the increasingly impatient tappings of the judicial pencil and increasingly increasing frowns on the judicial brow, but it did eventually occur to them. Maybe their lordships were becoming a mighty impression. So he said to Lord Denning, oh, my lord, I hope I have not exceeded my time. And Lord Denning looked down uh, in his Hampshire burr, which I can't possibly emulate. said, time, Mr. Smith, he says, time. You have exhausted time and trespassed on eternity. And I don't want to do that, so I'm stopping. said that he's happy to take questions I'm happy to field them but I hope to be able to catch them rather better than Roy uh, dealt with his glass. There is somebody with a, a microphone so anybody who is um, going to ask a question would you please take the microphone and announce who you are and uh, Roy will then take the question There's a question at the back over there Yeah <clears throat> Uh, hello, my name's Helen Tong and I'm a barrister at uh, Temple Court Chambers. Um, last year I did go to the Hague Academy to study a little bit about the uh, uh, private international law conflicts of laws. And in fact, I've actually used some of your text <laughs> oh. in some of the shipping matters I had to deal with. Um, I guess one of the things um, I'm still puzzled with is when I talk to some academics, they say, what, you know, what is conflicts of laws? It doesn't exist. Um, you either choose... Um, jurisdiction to fight your case or you don't um, but I think um, from my own limited experience or, um, I find that it's actually not the case in fact a lot of time and energy in court cases can be spent simply on trying to fight as to where the, the, juris the, the jurisdiction should be in order, in order to fight a case and one example I have is um, a shipping matter which I was put on notice you know any point in time I might be called to deal with this matter under English law um, when eventually it then got fought in the Singaporean courts so it was quite quite a strange situation but I just wanted to know um, a bit more what your thinking is in terms of um, the conflicts of laws, whether it's actually a false concept or, or whether actually um, let's just park it and just focus on harmonisation. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I think, uh, I think rather as I understand you think that actually the conflict of laws remains very important. Um, as you say, first of all, whatever we might do in the way of harmonising substantive law, we're still getting cases of jurisdiction, the first point. Uh, of course, we can have harmonised rules on jurisdiction as well, choice of court and so on, as you know, the hate. But, but still, we're going to get uh, contested things on jurisdiction. And we are also uh, going to be remain dependent on the conflict of laws to determine what is the applicable law. We can't harmonise everything, one thing. And even within 
a substantive law convention, you find that there are various references to the conflict of laws. For example, I mean, the Cape Town Convention says, well, if something falls within the definition of a, a charged title reservation lease, then it has to be recharacterized under the applicable law, under the conflict laws rules of the chosen by the conflict laws of the reform, to decide in what category it falls. So a conditional sale agreement, if the case is heard in Paris, will be treated, governed by the rules of the convention on conditional sales, but if it's in New York, it'll be governed by the rules on, 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 on charges, and, and the, the sets of rules are different. So I, I think that conflict of laws rules will remain important for the foreseeable future. I mean, we wouldn't want the Hague Conference on Private International Law to disappear after all that. Uh, so it, 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 it is important. And, and, and if that's your view too, then I agree with you. <coughs> Questions? Yeah. Ross Cranston. <coughs> I should just explain the rules of the game, that I deal with the easy questions and the difficult questions I'm going to pass over to Michael Bridge. This is an easy one, Roy. Uh, can I just ask you a little bit more about your experience with international harmonisation? I mean, you said quite rightly that one of the reasons for the success of the Cape Town Convention was because industry was involved. But you also said, also rightly, I think, that uh, government had to be there to act as a counter. But I'm just wondering if there aren't other parties which ought to be involved sometimes and aren't. Uh, So you said Afghanistan was one of the early signatories to one of the conventions, but often developing countries will say, look, we're not at the table when these things are negotiated. And sometimes down the line, they find that uh, when a particular transaction is challenged, uh, they haven't been there negotiating at the convention stage to determine the outcome in their particular case. Yeah, well, it's good. I mean, I, th- I think this, this criticism uh, probably to some extent still holds good and certainly uh, held good much more so in old days. Now, we can't, of course, have every country at the table. Well, we can come to the diplomatic conference, but um, there is a strong effort by the harmonising bodies like UNITRA and UNSTRA and so on to ensure that there are representatives of every major legal system. So it's not just the common law and the civil law, there's, there's you know, socialist law and so on. Um, so they are at least represented. And the thing with Cape Town in particular is that really the the, the whole point of this was to reduce the risk, reduce the risk by having uniform rules and therefore reduce the cost, increase predictability. And the estimate was that in any country which adopted the Cape Town Convention of Protocols in a particular form, a lot of money would be saved. In America, they reckon there was a study done that would save billions of dollars a year. And there's been one done for the UK, which certainly projects many hundreds of millions over a period of saving. In co- saving, first of all, because the cost of borrowing would come down, and secondly, the cost of, of credit insurance would come down. 
Um, so I think when people have, uh, I think there are conventions the, where your point would be perhaps more true than of the Cape Town Convention, simply because this is a, a this, this provides a facility for developing countries who otherwise would not get access to capital markets to buy their equipment or could get it only on extortionate terms to get hold of it. Now, it is true that would be, <coughs> on the whole, at the expense of allowing the creditors fairly stringent rights. But the benefits, I think, are seen to significantly outweigh the cost. But I think the point you made is a good one, that... Um, there is a problem, I think, uh, with a number of conventions of people who say, well, you know, as you say, we weren't at the table. Our views, our tradition, this runs contrary to our legal tradition, it runs contrary to our legal philosophy. One thing I should just mention about Cape Town, an uh, interesting um, technique was, there are certain issues on which states have legal sensitivity. For example, uh, uh, one would be the way you enforce remedies. We allow self-help, provided you don't break, commit a breach of the peace. A number of countries say, no, you must have a court order. Uh, so to respect those, there are various provisions which either don't apply unless a contracting state makes a declaration opting in or can be excluded by an opt-out uh, if they're on particularly sensitive things. There are a number of those. That's another feature of the Convention. It's a flexibility designed to ensure that states don't withhold ratifying simply because there's something that they really can't stomach, you know, and things. So this is, I think this is a technique which could usefully be used, would be a way of helping to alleviate the anxieties that uh, you have indicated, which I think are very well founded, actually. Yeah. Uh, the young client to camp over there. Thank you. I have a little question coming back on Article 9 of the UCC, which you have yes. very clearly uh, shown to be a model for uh, New Zealand, uh, uh, Canada, Australia, all common law jurisdictions. Um, as you might be aware, in the context of the inter-American model law on secure transactions, Article 9 has been attempted to be exported also into Latin America, which of course are uh, uh, civil law jurisdictions. From comparative experience, do you think this will work technically? Sorry? Do you think that uh, the Article 9 solution uh, of the UCC is really uh, compatible well, and can I mean, be well received uh, by it's interesting. I mean, Louisiana, which is a civil law jurisdiction, has adopted Quebec, which is a civil law jurisdiction in Canada, has adopted it. Um, what, let me say, the model, Article 9, has been adopted elsewhere for its concept, not for its current drafting. The what has happened with Article 9 is it's unfortunate. What has happened has been a casuistic approach where some practicing lawyer from out of town who's had a bad experience that will occur once in 10,000 times says, we've got to have a rule. So they have a rule. And then they have another rule. And they have a huge collection of rules. And the result is that the principles, the underlying concepts tend to be lost through this huge accumulation of rules which are subject to exceptions, which themselves are made subject to exceptions. And I think it's a pity because Article 9 is now almost unreadable if you are not a specialist. 
which is why, actually, in all the other jurisdictions, they've moved away entirely from the drafting style of Article They have retained the concept and the basic idea and the basic priority rules and so on. But they've moved away from that. And I think the style of drafting is actually very important. I mean, you, you want clarity of concept. You want to be able to see. You, uh, you can't avoid complexity. It's a complex area. But you do want to get a picture of what this is about, <coughs> which the old Article 9, when it first came out, did. And I think they've lost that. Whereas the Canadians have tried quite hard to preserve it, and Jersey, we hope, we preserved it, and, and New Zealand and Australia. They all differ somewhat. But I, I think it's worked out, and, and uh, it's interesting that the civil law jurisdictions have gone along with it. Of course, that may be because if you are in a country surrounded by common laws, you, you don't want to be the one that's left out. So maybe we shouldn't put too much on that. It doesn't mean that we can expect France, for example, to adopt Article 9 concepts. It probably won't happen. Um, but it obviously seems to be working in, in those two civil law jurisdictions that have adopted, I think. Yeah. Did you have something? So hang on. Wait for the mic. You stated that conflict of law rules are of main importance, and I ask myself why the Hague Securities Convention, which basically consists of conflict of law yeah. rules, was not a mm. success, because it's just signed by a few states. Well, let me, let me, t let me tell you what happened. Let me tell you what happened. The basic idea was you choose... The applicable law would be the law uh, of the place of the relevant intermediary. That would govern the, the rights of the parties to the account, it would govern c competing assignments of the account and so on. Everybody was happy with that. The e EU, it was then the European Community, I think, was, was happy with it. You know, the French were on board, the Italian, everybody was happy. Then what happened was the American experts who were used to Article 9 of the UCC came along and they said, and they were right in a way, well, uh, this function of maintaining accounts can be conducted in different countries. I think I may have mentioned this before, governed by different laws. And therefore, if you say the law of the place where the security account is maintained, it could be in some cases one of three or four or five different countries, same intermediary. So that is not certain. So what they did was to come up with what they've got in Article 8 of the UCC, which is to say you choose the law uh, of the, uh, the law that is governing the securities account, the law that's selected in the securities account, or failing that, there are other ways of doing it, but you choose that law. And interesting, that law between the parties, the, the, the account holder and the intermediary, would govern not only their relationship, but relationship vis-à-vis -vis third parties and even competing priorities. Now, this is a counterintuitive. You know, it does actually work, but it is really counterintuitive that the contract between A and B should govern priorities between C and D. I mean, that's contrary to anything we've ever understood about how, how the law works. It does actually work perfectly well, but it was a major change. In retrospect, we made a mistake, I think. I think we should have said, look, we've got this far on the basis of something which there's a lot of agreement. Let's sell it another way. Let's say that if things are conducted 
in different countries by the same intermediary, let's decide which branch will be treated as the relevant branch and go down that route. The thing would then have gone through just like that. I mean, we would have had an operative convention, I'm convinced, years ago. Instead of which, it's the case of, uh, of the best being the enemy of the good, actually. And we walked into opposition. And in retrospect, I rather regret that I myself didn't, didn't think to press for adhering to the basic concept that there was before. And that is the real reason we, we attracted a great concern. A lot of it is unjustified. I mean, the, the commission set up a working party to look into. They recommended that all, they said all the objections raised by the ECB and so on were unfounded and the, and the uh, community should ratify. But the, the influences against it were too strong. So it, it, it's, it's pity. I, I mean, I still, hope, I still have some hopes, but, you know, not, not very strong ones. Mm. The next on my list is Ben McFarlane over there. Thanks. Um, so you've been talking both about international harmonisation and domestic law reform. And uh, I was just wondering whether you think it's important to consider the possibility that what works at an international level might be different from what's required at a domestic level. So, for example, if we're looking at harmonisation across jurisdictions, so, for example, in a country such as America where there are lots and lots of different jurisdictions it may well be necessary to have some sort of super-jurisdictional code. And similarly, when you're looking at the conventions about international harmonisation, again, you're dealing with lots of different jurisdictions, uh, a sort of code that everyone can sign up to is necessary. But then when we're looking at English law, domestic law reform, might there actually be some dangers or disadvantages in trying to adopt a code, you know, whether it's on the Law Commission model, whether it's on the PPSA model? And that actually the common law may have certain advantages, you know, in terms of adaptability. It avoids the disadvantages of having to draft a code and getting the wording right. The common law doesn't it won't the common law won't be fixed at a particular point in the same way that a code will. And and you mentioned that obviously in the common law we often rely on nineteenth century cases, even today. But I wouldn't necessarily think of that as a disadvantage. You know, certain basic principles in contract law, trust law, equity, for example, have, have been long established and worked out through the courts over a long period. And that, in many ways, is a source of strength, I think, rather than a disadvantage. So, so my question is, is, is there a risk that the code approach, which I agree is necessary at an international level, we might need to think twice about adopting that at a domestic level? Well, of course, in America, it is at domestic level. Um, and, and the interesting thing is that I don't think the driver for that, actually, was the desire to harmonize across the United States because there were already, there were already uniform laws. There were uniform law on conditional sales, on trust receipts, on chattel mortgages. So the driver was something different. The driver was suddenly a perception, which originally they weren't going to follow. Look... You know, we've got separate rules, and actually, why do we have so many separate rules for what is basically the same, economically, the same transaction? So what drove them, I think, was not uh, the need to harmonise nationally, although that obviously is an advantage, but the need to produce something more sensible. Now, you say, well, good old common law. I mean, I think the common law... Is, I, has done remarkably well, and we've also got very good judges. But 
The fact is, it's very hard work digging it out. I mean, you've only got to look at the number of cases every year that concern trusts, that concern property. Well, you yourself, of course, have written quite a lot on property. Uh, and so, you know, you, you'll have experienced some of the problems that we have. We have books on unjust enrichment. We have, a, we, we have massive books on, on everything. And still, we are not getting predictability. Uh, we're not getting predictability. Now, what the UCC does is actually quite... It has sort of built-in things that are designed concepts of reasonableness and so on that are designed to, to give some flexibility, to allow the courts to respond to development so you're not locked into something that was first cast in, in 1952. I think, and, and the, the other thing is the Americans take their commercial law seriously and they have a means of getting it legislated. Uh, they put a lot of effort in. Every 10 years they will review perhaps the, you know, the UCC, They'll have meetings of the National Conference of Commissioners of Uniform Laws and the American Law Institute. They will get things done because they see it as important to do it. Our trouble is that our legislature, you know, what does it take to get our legislature interested, actually? This is, this is a real stumbling block. Even the best things... You've, you've got to grind away forever, actually. You're either told there's not industry support, or if there's industry support, they say there's no parliamentary time. You know, this is something we need to do something about, actually. And it is the, the lack of engagement, the lack of interest. And we also lack a mechanism. We, we, you know, we don't have the National Conference Commissioners on Uniform State Laws because we're, we're only relatively unitary state. And we don't have the body like the ALI. We, we really need a concerted group of lawyers and, and also lawyers who are involved with different sizes of, of, of body, you know, the big bodies, the smaller companies and the unincorporated bodies and so on, uh, to come together. So the, the process, the cards seem to be stacked against us and uh, it's just, I mean, thank goodness we've got a law commission, but... Uh, uh, the problems they have in getting their stuff through are legendary. So I think that I agree with you, the cotton law is a great source of strength, but, you know, we're all having to write textbooks and things to try to explain what it is until a judge says, actually, we didn't get it quite right, and everybody else goes in a different direction. I personally sort of, in some sense, welcome this. I mean, I think you have to understand, the role of... Um, Academics in general, and textbook writers in particular, is to inject doubt where none existed before. And this uh, provokes litigation, which is undoubtedly in the public interest because it enriches our jurisprudence. So in that sense, I, I, I would rather agree with your point. But, but, but generally, I think we, it is time to get our law in some sort of order. I think. Yeah. It's perhaps time for one final short question. Well, I could ask, abusing Chairman's privilege, one final short question, which is a question of scale, and I'm going to put the question in the mouth of a third party. What do you say to the third party who says, I'm not sure about the scale of this reform? Either it doesn't go far enough because it abolishes the difference between law and equity, fixed and floating, and how then will it integrate in the remaining body of commercial law and to that same person who might say, proceeding in the opposite direction, we can get to where we need to go by means of a few incremental reforms. 
improving registration processes, having some decent priority rules, dealing with the problem of future advances. Are we going for this subject in the right place? Should we be broader? Should we be narrower? Well, I mean, uh, just taking that, uh, if you do provide a decent registration system, which would include filing a financing statement and the ability to file in advance, and you reform your priority rules, and, and you assimilate the treatment of different types of transactions which fulfill the same economic function. I know you're really, that's exactly what is being proposed, actually. So I would say that's fine, I'm going to go along with that. But I don't think you can do it by a little bit here and a little bit there. This salami slicing, which the UK is very fond of, and we've got it with the, with the, you know, the new rules, registration of company charges now before us. Well, um, of course, I, you know, they're fine, but they don't do anything very much, actually. You know, they're playing around at the margins. We've got, I think, beyond the point when we can have marginal, incremental reform. We, we need something which is more radical, if you like. Uh, and I have to say that, actually, practitioners could do very well out of this because if they get involved in this, they will become expert by the time the law comes into force and they should be able to do quite well advising clients you know, on, on this new legislation. So those who have been against it are really quite altruistic, I think. Well, I'm, I'm happy to call today there on that note that says there's money to be made by the profession, which equals costs imposed upon commercial parties, perhaps. Uh, I think in the time-honoured way, we should thank Roy for what was a very stimulating and masterly presentation of complex issues. Thank you.